my plan is to uh, is to just give us an introduction to Second Peter, and not an in-depth introduction. There's all sorts of things that can be said about this uh, interesting, very interesting book. But um, I'll just give a brief introduction here. But let's let's read the first four verses, and um, you'll find the English Standard Version up there on the screen behind me. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right. So let's go back up to that opening verse there. Um, first, let me say that First Peter and Second Peter are different than one another. Um, Interestingly, commentator Richard Baucom, uh, who uh, wrote the word biblical commentary on 2 Peter, states that 2 Peter has characteristics both of an ancient epistle, that means a, a letter, right? That's why it has an introduction like this. Um, and it also, this is the first time I remember, can remember reading this, of a final testament. Like your final words, you know you're on your deathbed and you're writing your final words. So... When we concluded First uh, Peter, it says uh, he thanked Silvanus, who was the one that apparently wrote that down for him. Um, in fact, let me just go up. Um, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. So that's verse 12 of First Peter chapter 5. And I mentioned at that point in time, uh, it also talks, he also says, uh, he says, uh, Peter in 1 Peter says, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Well, Babylon in this case is Rome. So Peter is in Rome, and it is very likely that, that this is a time when Paul has already been arrested as and is at least in house arrest in Rome. We're not totally sure when 1 Peter was written, probably somewhere between 60 and 64. And that would have significant bearing on uh, whether Paul was still alive, right? Uh, because somewhere in the vicinity of 64, Paul was executed under Nero's orders. He, he was uh, decapitated, which is how they would have executed a Roman citizen. And that sounds gruesome and terrible, and it is, but it was also far more merciful than crucifixion, which was a horrible, excruciating, in fact, that word comes from crucifixion, excruciating out of the cross, painful death. And that's how the Romans crucified or executed uh, non-citizens who they considered to be capital criminals, that is, deserving of death. So Paul may have still been alive. He may have still been under house arrest. He may have been in the Mamertine dungeon, which is where he would have wound up uh, after some initial trials before Nero when he was awaiting his death. But the reason why I say I believe Paul 
was in Rome, in addition to the late date of 1 Peter, is because Silvanus was in Rome. Silvanus is Silas, Paul and Silas, the second missionary journey. He was Paul's companion. He's the one that took the place of Barnabas on the second missionary journey, and he was a uh, Paul's right-hand man, essentially. So because he is writing for Peter there, then I think that it's a clear indication that Paul and Peter are both in Rome. Both of their lives ended in Rome. When we get to 2 Peter now, um, there are indicators, as we go through the letter we'll see, there are indicators that this is like a Last Testament, that Peter is staring down, uh, staring into the face of his own death. So it may well, excuse me, may well be that Peter had been arrested by this point and was awaiting his execution. Um, church tradition has it, uh, history has it, that um, Peter was, was crucified, but he told the Roman guards or the officials that were executing him that um, he did not believe that he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So they said, okay. So they turned the cross upside down and executed him upside down. Now, I don't know how, how that would work. See, the, the crucifixion is designed to suffocate its victim slowly. Now, I know that sounds weird because we talk about the blood of the lamb and you would think, well, they, you know, they would bleed out. Not really. And what they would do is they would both tie and nail, and sometimes just tie, but tie and nail their hands to the cross beams. And then essentially their full body weight is pulling down on these crucified arms. The feet are crucified, but you can't hold your full weight up on a single nail going through both of your feet. That's the only way you can breathe. Now, early on in the early years when I, when I was preaching and before I had read some more uh, regarding the science of, of crucifixion, and perhaps they hadn't even uh, thought through this entirely, it was my understanding that they had to pull up on their crucified hands, or wrists in this case. As most uh, experts in this field will say that they, they actually, the, the nail didn't go through the palm, the nail went through the base of the wrist. Now, if you understand the bone structure here, the radius and the ulna, then that could have happened and still not broken any of Jesus' bones. It would have been difficult to drive a nail through your hands and not break several of these metacarpals. The other thing is, that nail is gonna rip right out of your hand when you start pulling, this is, this is a very fine structure. Even if you've got some seriously meaty hands, this is a very fine structure. But this, right, this hooks right under where the hand connects. So it makes a lot of sense that that's the way that they would have done it, okay? If in addition to that, they roped them in just to make sure they didn't rip free of those nails, then you have this, this suffocation that happens. All right, well, early on, I assumed, and I believe I had been taught, that each time, so uh, Jesus made seven statements on the cross, the seven uh, last words of Christ. And everyone is significant because he had to raise up on his crucified feet and pull himself up with, on his crucified hands to say it. But I had been taught, or I know I'd been taught because I wouldn't have known this on my own, <clears throat> that they had to raise up in order to breathe in. It's not correct. They had to raise up in order to breathe out. That's really, you would suffocate faster 
if it was a matter of being able to raise up to breathe in, that would mean that once you lost the ability to raise up, you would just suffocate, right? You could, uh, uh, like drowning, which is horrible, but it, it doesn't last days, it lasts minutes, all right? What happened was you could breathe in, but you couldn't push the air out. So you got this carbon dioxide poisoning going on inside your lungs and you start to get woozy and you have to push up to breathe out and then you collapse back and breathe in. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. Now, I don't know how that would work if they crucified Peter upside down. I don't know how he would have actually died, but who knows, okay? Um, but not the normal way that crucifixion would kill somebody, certainly. Um, nonetheless, Peter is writing what appears to be a letter and a last testament. He wants uh, those who read this to understand what he considers to be important. And as is the case with these letters, virtually all of the letters that are written, they're written to address a problem. And typically that problem involves false teaching. So let's go all the way back to one of Paul's earliest letters, Galatians. That is to address the false teaching of the Judaizers, those that were telling people, hey, you need to become a Jew first and you need to observe all of the commandments of the law before you can become a Christian. Because to them, Christianity was not a uh, new wine in new wineskins, right? It was just another sect of Judaism. Well, the outworking of the early church um, was that, no, this is God's offer to the Gentiles, and it is sheerly by grace, and he's going to set them apart, not uh, strictly by their eating habits or the way they dress and many of the ritual things that were involved in the law, but by the way they follow Christ, and really by their morality to a great degree, by their love for one another. Um, those sorts of things. So Bauckham says that it has characteristics of an ancient epistle and a final testament. Um, and once again, the latter refers to the revered last words or final testament of a hero or well-respected leader. So this would be Peter's version of Moses' last words. Moses' last words are contained in what book? Come on, Bible scholars. Deuteronomy. <laughs> Deuteros nomos, another law, not another different law. That would be heteros nomos, another statement of the law, the restatement. In Deuteronomy, Moses says again and again, remember, 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 remember. So that was Moses' extended final testament, and this is Peter's. I like that. I, I really, really do. That was illuminating to me this time through. All right, let's look at that first phrase. Simeon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I mentioned this last week in anticipation of this, but Simeon is the, the Hebraic version of Simon's name. Simon was the shortened Greek version. This is the way they would have said it, right? But if you go back to the Old Testament, all right, who is the, the firstborn son of Jacob or Israel? Reuben. Who's the second born son? Simeon. Right? 
So it was a very common name. In fact, uh, it might have been Bauckham that I read on this. There are not a whole lot of commentaries on 2 Peter, by the way. Okay, But this is a really good commentary on it. But uh, that Simeon was one of the, perhaps the, number one, most common male name at this point in time. Very common name. So it makes a lot of sense then to me that Jesus said, yeah, there's a lot of Simons out there. I'm going to call you Peter. Petros. What does it mean? Rock. Rock. But not a giant rock of Gibraltar. It means a stone. Right? Um, so he calls himself a bondservant and an apostle. So a bondservant is a slave that chooses that. It's not someone that's forced into servitude. <clears throat> it is someone who chooses to serve the master. And that is what Paul often called himself as well, a bondservant of Christ. I choose to follow Christ, not just as a student, but as his slave. And in fact, Jesus said, um, I've called you more than that. Jesus said in John chapter 15, um, a slave does what his master says and follows his master, but I've called you friends because everything the Father made known to me, I have made known to you. And that's what we aim for. So a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, I said that there are people who are fans of Jesus. There are people that follow Jesus around. And then I said that there are those that are friends of Christ, right? Um, so, and he calls himself an apostle. There's two senses that we want to attach to this word. The word apostolos in Greek just means a messenger, right? Which, interestingly, is what angelos, which is translated angel, means, a messenger. But an apostolos was an ambassador. So, you know, the United States has ambassadors all over the world. They are apostles of the United States. That's the more general, the more broad way of understanding the term. These apostles are Christ's ambassadors. They're representing him everywhere he goes. In that broad sense, anybody who chooses to follow Christ is sent to represent Christ, right? But Peter was an apostle in a far more specific sense. Um, there were 12 that were chosen by Jesus initially. One of them betrayed him, Judas. But after the resurrection, Jesus gave a commission to the other 11, and he told them to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. And then that's in Matthew 28. And then in Acts chapter 1, he tells them, and you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were, right there. That's where it started. In Judea, that's the surrounding state. In Samaria, that was the next door state. That was Oklahoma to Texas, right? And to the remotest part of the earth. So that was outside of their normal experience. That was in the extreme regions of, of the Gentiles, right? But that was the commission he gave to those initial, uh, those original disciples. Now, Peter in Acts chapter 1 uh, stands up. He's been chosen to be the leader. Jesus has restored him after he's denied Jesus. He stands up and he tells them, look, Judas betrayed his, his office, so we need to find somebody else to do this. 
So they chose another, another fella uh, to come in and take Judas's place. And the statement that Peter made is that this needs to be somebody that was with us from the beginning and who witnessed the resurrection. So these initial 12 had been with Jesus from the beginning and had witnessed the resurrection, like eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And you're going to see how important that is uh, in, in the, next week or the week after. It'll probably be two weeks. Um, when we see what the, Peter has to say about the importance of them being eyewitnesses. Guys, Christianity is a historical religion, not a hysterical religion. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, people just get all emotional about their religious experiences and feelings and, you know, it's just, uh, I just, this is the way I feel and this is my truth and this is what I think. And the, Christianity is a historical religion. It's based on actual, factual incidents. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what are we sitting here for? Exactly. I, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I am not, I, I technically majored in religion in college. I'm not a fan of religion. A lot of religion is just super, super nutty, okay? So you, you see people like Bill Maher that make fun of religion all the time. And this is why I think it's important to understand that Christianity is not merely another religion. We need to delve into who Jesus was as a person and what Christianity teaches theologically speaking. And we need to focus on those facts because the most brilliant men in history since Christ have been Christians. And so this is not a matter of just emotionalism. It's not a matter of uh, stories being told, fables or myths being told uh, to try to teach children or make people feel better about their plight in life. No, this is, this is actual factual reality. So Peter is saying he's an apostle, and that means that he's been sent to validate the resurrection. That's what you need to understand, right? An apostle of Jesus Christ means that who he was, that is who he was sent by. Uh, apostle is another word that can be used. It means he's an envoy sent by God with a message, right? Um, in fact, I tell you what, let's go back to Acts 1, because I can do that pretty quickly. Uh, Acts 1, 15 through 17, I actually had the verses in my notes here. Oh, not 15, 1, 15. Come on, Daryl, wake up, son. All right, here we go. These, are the, these were the uh, requirements. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. This is after Jesus had ascended. And when they had entered, that is the upper room, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, which is great because his brothers didn't believe in him about midway through John, but after the resurrection they did. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. 
Now this man acquired a field, that is this man Judas, acquired a field with the, the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's disgusting. But the Bible is kind of, you know, real brutal, right? It doesn't pull any punches. That's why there's, there's a lot of passages of scripture you just really don't want kids reading right away because they're just, they're just, they're kind of rough, right? So, um, yeah, in passing, so, you know, in the Gospels it says Judas hanged himself and here it says that, you know, he fell and his guts burst open. Well, so what happened with that? Hung himself, branch broke, fell, his guts burst open. There you go. There's your, syn your, your, your synchronization. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their language, Akeldama, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp be desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and in among us. So here's your first requirement. Peter says, one of the men, now, Women were the first ones to witness the resurrection. And that is preserved in the Gospels. In fact, uh, apologists like William Lane Craig will tell you that that is a sign that the Gospels are giving you factual information. Because if they wanted to convince people, they wouldn't have said women were the first ones to see the resurrection. That's because they didn't trust the testimony. A woman couldn't testify in court. They didn't trust the testimony of a woman. They considered them to be hysterical, emotional, you know, to, to have these ideas. Uh, but nonetheless, this is uh, something that was necessary that these original apostles be men because then they would be trusted by their culture. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us has to be a man, has to have accompanied them during the entire time, the whole three to three and a half years, right? Beginning from the baptism of John, so that's at the very beginning, until the day when he was taken up from us. That means all the way to the ascension, which they had just witnessed. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, right? So they had to be male, they had to have been with them the entire time, they had to have seen the resurrection and the ascension, right? And so uh, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, if you're in a Baptist church, they're going to tell you that those lots were, uh, were votes, but that's probably not the case. They actually cast lots. It's like saying, okay, flip a coin, right? So a is Joseph Barsabbas, you know, heads is Joseph Barsabbas, and tails is... Well, this is a very human way of doing this because it becomes readily apparent that in spite of Peter's... Uh, statement about this, the Apostle Paul is the real 12th Apostle. He's the one that God sent, right? And so the requirements for him were just uh, obviously a bit different. But nonetheless, I wanted you to understand what he meant by Apostle. Then it says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So he's writing to people who have the same kind of faith. So not an emotional faith, um, not a faith of a, a lower quality, 
um, simply because perhaps it would have been considered that an apostle had one degree of faith because he actually saw Jesus. But then here are these people that just hear the gospel, and they have another quality of faith. But you want to hear something interesting? Thomas saw Jesus. When Jesus was crucified and he appeared to the apostles, the disciples, on that first Sunday, Thomas wasn't there. He was depressed. So they told him, hey, Jesus appeared. He said, right, okay. I'm going to believe that when I see the holes in his hand. In fact, I need to put my finger in the holes in his hand. I need to put my hand up in that rip in his side that the Roman soldier uh, penetrated with a spear. Then I'll believe. But he showed up the next Sunday, and Jesus showed up. And Jesus said, Thomas, here. Hey, Thomas, right here. Thomas gets on his face and says, my Lord and my God. Greatest confession in the scripture. You would think that Jesus would say, amen, Thomas. <laughs> Such great faith you have. No. He said, so you say this because you see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. You haven't seen Jesus. You've seen Jesus with the eyes of faith. You've believed. Right? So it's the same quality of faith. That's that equal standing right there. Say it again. That's that equal standing right That there. is that equal, and that's what he's saying right there. There is the equal standing with ours, exactly. So we obtain this, or we receive this. Um, it's the word lankano, which uh, means to receive with the implication that the process is related somehow to divine will or favor. That's from Lou and Nita, all right? So um, this is something that I don't go out and get. It is something that God grants. I don't go out chasing it. God grants it. It's a gift. Even faith is a gift. It's an opportunity. Now, I believe everybody has a limited amount of faith that is implanted within them. It is a, the ability to respond to the word when they hear it. But beginning at the point in time when you are capable of saying yes and no, when you're a child, when you're capable of deciding that this is now your faith and you choose to believe, from that point forward, you either strengthen that faith by continuing to believe or you weaken that faith and eventually eliminate that faith by continuing to uh, resist and reject uh, the word. Um, so the emphasis here is more on God's election than on human choice. By grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, many will say that this means that that salvation is not of yourselves, and I would say that that's true. But ultimately, you need to understand that if God doesn't make the offer, it doesn't matter what you say or what you do or what you believe. This is God's economy. This is God's setup. This is his system, right? We don't obligate God by doing works. We don't obligate God by believing. God has set this up, and God has offered the opportunity, and God has given what some theologians call prevenient grace. That means he goes out before you and offers grace even before you are willing to respond to it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't reject it. I don't, I don't believe in irresistible grace, 
right? If there was irresistible grace, and it is true that it is not God's wish or desire or will that any perish, then none would perish because he would put his grace forth and make everybody saved, and so we would all be universalists. No, there's hell, so there's no irresistible grace, but there is prevenient grace. God's always seeking to work ahead of you to put you in a position where you can and you will receive him. So let's just look at it this way. If God didn't choose you, you could not and would not choose to trust him. But are those whom God seeks who reject him? I believe so. And again, that's why I believe that there's a hell. So God can also choose a person who then rejects him. You say, oh, well, we know you're not a Calvinist then. Well, did Jesus choose Judas? Yes. Mm -hmm. Did Judas reject Jesus? Did Jesus choose Peter? Peter denied Jesus, but did Peter reject Jesus? No, he didn't. Now, I do believe that Judas could have been forgiven, but he would not repent. He had regret, but that's not the same as repentance. You can feel bad about something, but if you don't have any sort of a willingness to change, then it's irrelevant. How you feel about something is irrelevant. Uh, watch children, all right? If they get caught doing something, that like red-handed caught, then they might, you know, cry, they might get upset, they might feel bad, but you know, moms know that's not the same as a change of heart. That means you got caught. I always, when I was in group home, and this has been many years ago, but I used to run a group home, a foster care group home. Um, so these were kids that, for whatever reason, could not be with their birth family any longer. And then they could also not be placed in a regular foster care home. They couldn't stay in a, a standard home with a standard family. There were lots of different reasons, um, but they came to our group home, and so there was more of a structure there. Um, I would always, when I was trying to interview kids that I had suspected had done something wrong, okay, I would always try to get them to tell me something that I did not know. See, if they just tell you what they already know you know, they're not confessing anything. I need to get them to confess something that I don't know. I need them to trust me enough that they're willing to put themselves at risk and get in trouble. I want them to tell me what really happened. Then I'm willing to offer grace. But if they just keep covering up, covering up, covering that's the natural, natural, natural human tendency, is to cover up, cover up. But what does the proverb say? He who conceals his sins will not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them. What does it mean to renounce something? That means that's I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. That one will find mercy. And that's, that's the way I operate. So I, you know, I've tried to bust kids on plenty of occasions for stuff that I suspected they had done. Um, and maybe I had limited proof, maybe I didn't have proof. Um, we had a couple of guys, uh, Lee was around when I was shepherding these obnoxious children around. 
Um, so was Jacob. Uh, and uh, there were three boys, and one of them passed away a couple of years ago. One of them is in jail right now, and the other one calls me still once a week. I still get calls from Eric about once a week. Um, in fact, he FaceTimes me. Why does there FaceTime? And then I have to look at myself and the little, you know, man, what am I doing? I'm old, that's what I feel. I'm old, I'm old. These kids like to FaceTime because like, look at how pretty I am. Look at my face, I'm pretty. And I'm just looking at my face going, you just look old. That's what, but anyway. All three of those kids, all three of those kids, at one point in time or another, stole something. From you or just in general? Like, you know. Nope, nope. Two of them shoplifted from different stores, and one of them tried to steal uh, another young man's phone at The Rock. So my effort was, this is what I know, my effort was, I want here's how I would know, especially with the two brothers, one would tell on the other one. They were bad about ratting each other out. One was like, no, he did. Yep, I know he did. So, but it was worse than that. So there was one time when uh, one of these brothers put his foot through the wall at his house and then blamed his brother for it. And I said, come here. I said, come here, lift your foot up. His foot fit in the hole like it was a shoe. <laughs> I said, you did this. So yeah, so he had now, now that he sees his foot fit in the hole like a shoe, he's willing to admit it. But he comes up with this completely <laughs> bizarre story as to, you know, how this ever, anyway, yeah. Uh, I'm always trying to get them to tell on themselves because it, there needs to be, there needs to be honesty if there is any sort of genuine repentance. All right. Uh, I don't know how I got off on that. All right. So let's go on. <laughs> By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, that's a really high Christology. Jesus is called our God and Savior. Wow. So there are those that are like, well, you know, the apostles you know, came along and you know, they made Jesus God because he didn't. No, the reason Jesus was executed was because he was claiming to be the son of God, right? The reason that the high priest tore his robes is because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And he said, I am. And you shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of glory. <laughs> That's in Mark. That's the earliest gospel. Jesus didn't just come up and say, no, 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 I'm not really that. I'm, I'm really not. Why, why are you guys coming up against me? I'm just a rabbi. I'm just a misunderstood Jew. I'm just a misunderstood rabbi. I don't know why you're trying to crucify me. I'm just a moral teacher. I'm a nice guy. What's wrong with you people? No, man. It's, it's what C.S. Lewis said. I mean, he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord and God. So, but if he was a liar, he died for his lies and he was a lunatic, read his words. That doesn't sound like the words of a, a crazy man. Those do not sound like the words of a crazy man. But he does claim to be one with the Father, right? Before Abraham was born, I am. If he was speaking Aramaic, and he probably was, it's, this is written in Greek, this is in John, then that is probably the Tetragrammaton. That's God's name, and he's applying it to himself, right? 
He said, I and the Father are one. Each time he said these things, the Jews knew they pick up stones to kill him. Peter was the guy that Jesus chose to be his number one, and Jesus, Peter calls him Lord, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just Lord, but our God, which, by the way, I've said this before, but the reason that that description Lord, that title Lord, is applied to Jesus all the time is because it is pointing to the fact that he is God, because this is the same word that they use to represent God's name, the Tetragrammaton, all right? Um, notice that our faith comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, let's go up and actually let's, uh, there we go, it's, it's up there. Simon, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by, via, through, Greek word, in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Look, this is you. This is Jesus. This is you. You're not righteous. This is Jesus. You're in Christ. Now you are righteous, not righteous, in Christ, righteous. Amen? Amen? It's important that you understand that. We're not working our way into heaven. It's going to be important for you to understand that because next week we're going to see that this doesn't mean we don't work. We're just not working for a spot, right? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses are working for a spot. Um, that's not what we're doing. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. We need that all the time, don't we? This is a common opening to uh, a letter. It's included in the greeting of Christian epistles. 1 Peter 1.2 says the same thing. So this ties 1 and 2 Peter together. Romans 1.7 says the same thing. Titus 1.4 says the same thing. So there's two letters from Paul, two letters from Peter, that have the same grace and peace at the beginning. Um, since we're saved by grace and in the world we have trouble, then we need uh, the two to be multiplied to live sanely and happily. I think that's, uh, that's a good point. All right. <clears throat> now let's go back and get back to... All right, First Peter 1. All right. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, this is verse 2, in the knowledge of our God, of God, and of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, this helps us to step away from the heresy of the united Pentecostal folk who are pursuing an ancient heresy called Monarchian modalism. So, right up the street up here, there's a united Pentecostal church. And if you went there... They would sing great music, and you would really, really enjoy it. But it's called the Jesus-only movement. There's no Father. There's no, there's no Spirit. There's just Jesus. Just Jesus only. So who was Jesus praying to on the cross? Himself? <laughs> when Jesus died, he didn't really die, apparently, because then that means God died completely. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? The only thing that makes sense is this paradox, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice... Although 
um, Peter clearly said, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, he then says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So here, he is helping you to understand that there are distinct persons that we're referring to here. Right, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, or by his own glory and excellence, right? So this grace and peace flows from a full apostolic orthodox knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge not being the Gnostic idea of knowledge, this secret knowledge that you just sort of receive, right? This is actual knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is, as opposed to partial knowledge or heretical ideas attached to Jesus' name. Uh, I mean, it's been, what, 14, 15 years ago now? Anybody remember the book, The Da Vinci Code? Promoting Gnosticism. Dan Brown lies and tells everybody that all the historical information in here is fact. Really? So N.T. Wright uh, was uh, a, uh, uh, what was he in the Anglican Church? He was a high-ranking official in the Anglican Church. He's written a lot of commentaries. But his office was actually in Westminster Abbey. And this is one of the buildings that Dan Brown wrote about and tried to uh, present what would appear to be historical knowledge. Apparently, he'd never been to the building or he just didn't care because I can remember N.T. Wright commentating. He says, I, this is where my office is, and that's not true. That's, this isn't even accurate. Nothing that this guy wrote was accurate. It's a novel. A novel is fiction. The problem is the guy was trying to present fiction as though it were fact, and he doesn't care about the distinction, kind of like certain political parties that I could mention, right? All right. A lot of people like to take Jesus' name and use his good name and his credibility to label their ideas or their religion, right? KKK will tell you that they're Christians. Burn crosses in people's yards, right? Mormons will tell you they're Christians. Interestingly, Joseph Smith was specifically told in his purported dream that he was not to join any church, that they were all apostate. But now Mormons want you to believe that they're just another Christian group. No, they're not, right? Bless them as people, bless them, right? But understand that this religion is polytheism. What's polytheism? It means you, they worship many gods. We don't worship many gods. They believe that there is a god of this planet, but there are separate gods of many different planets. It gets worse. Their whole goal is to become gods of their own planets. That's your goal as a Mormon. That sounds like some kind of like crazy. As we are, this is this is what one of their this is what one of their leaders said. As we are, God once was. 
as God is, we may, we may one day become. But they use Jesus in their system and they present these, you know, these images that are, you know, what many people can remember from Sunday school images of Jesus and the disciples, and they tell some of the same stories. But then they want they want to give you this Book of Mormon. They don't want you to read the New Testament, they want you to read the Book of Mormon, which is like Lord of the Rings, only not as good. <laughs> it would be like Tolkien was trying to convince you that Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth were real. That's what this is, right? But there's lots of different religious groups, and this goes all the way back to the beginning. The Gnostics are a good example. They're very early. The Gnostics came along very early. They're Neoplatonists. They believe the, the, the physical is evil. They believe matter is evil. Wait, it gets, gets better. They believe that the God who created matter is evil. That means that they believe Yahweh, the God of the Jews, is the devil. When they read the story in Genesis chapter 3 of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, they saw the serpent as representing good and wisdom. Wow. That sounds like Satan's way of spinning the whole thing around, right? And so they wrote all sorts of books, you know, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, right? That's one of the ones that is often, most often compared to the New Testament, which it's nothing like the New Testament. The Jesus of the Gnostics is a completely different figure, but they are relying on the credentials of the historical person that the Gospels write about to import credibility into their ideology, their philosophy, their religion, right? So that's why we need to keep going back to these authentic Gospels, these four Gospels. In this church, I, I've taught again and again and again through the Gospels. I've got Pastor Craig back here teaching through Matthew right now. Um, one of the selections that I sent out to you guys, and I hope you took my little survey. Uh, it's just a one-question survey. I gave, I gave three options. In fact, there's a fourth one that, that could relate to this, and I didn't put it in there. But... Um, but two of the options are uh, Johannine, that is, they're from John, uh, largely from the book of Revelation to do an, a session on eschatology, which the last time I did this was in 2012, uh, when everybody was freaked out about uh, the end of the, uh, the uh, calendar. Yeah. You remember that? I remember that, 1999. The 2000, are you talking no, about? No, 2012 that? was oh, the no, end no, of the... Uh, the Mayan calendar. Remember that? Calendar, yeah. The end of the Mayan calendar, so the world's going to end? Right. I don't remember that exactly, but I remember they get in. So that's the last time I taught on Revelation, and people were marginally interested now. But now, because of everything that's going on, people are more interested again, because it's leading. It's number one right now. It has the most votes for number one and the most votes for number two, followed by John. All right, so in any event, uh, we may be getting into that uh, that very soon. All right, so we, we are listening to, paying attention to an apostolic, orthodox knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just some internal vision or feeling, okay? This is actual, factual, historical knowledge. That's what we're putting our faith in. All right, <clears throat> then... Um, he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything that we need 
for life and godliness. This verse joins the greeting to the body of the letter. We have grace and peace multiplied because of what his divine power has granted to us, which follows. Divine, uh, this is an unusual word in the New Testament. It's only used three times, but it is common in the Roman world of Peter's day. It's the word theos, right? The word theos, theta, epsilon, omicron, sigma, is just the word for God. Theos adds an iota in the middle there, so we go from God to divine, or what uh, is related to God, okay? His divine power, the power that only comes from God, his God power, if you will, right? So this is God's unique ability to do the thing. This has given us everything for life and godliness. What is, what is God's divine power granted us? There's one word there that tells you. Life. What is it granted us related to life and godliness? Everything. Everything. God's not leaving anything out. He's given you everything you need. You don't need to seek another seer. You don't need to seek another religious figure, another religious experience. What you need to do is to push deeper into this real relationship with God, with Jesus, because he's already given it to you. He's already deposited it in your account, if you will, all right? Um, so uh, this has given us everything. This is the perfect tense in Greek. In Greek. That means that he has and continues to give us, right? So this is something that has already begun and continues to have uh, consequences into the future. Nothing's left out. He's given us everything we need. Excuse me. All the materials are there to build the Christian life to which you are called. And as people go chasing new experiences, well, I need to have the baptism of the Spirit now, and now I need to have this anointing, and I need to go and get under this teacher, and I need... You have what you need. You need to build on that. That doesn't mean don't grow deeper in your walk with Christ. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, leave out spiritual gifts that God wants to give you. That doesn't mean don't be filled to overflow with the Spirit, which some people, you know, construe as baptism of the Spirit. It doesn't mean don't receive, you know, some sort of an experience that the Lord wants to give you. Just don't rely on that. You've already been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. Um, you don't need to add these other things, right? He's already bestowed it all upon us by grace. So everything that relates to the kind of life God would have us live here on earth, this godly or pious or holy life, has been given to us, right? Um, the word godliness is the word eusebia in Greek. And it is from two Greek words, sebomai, to worship from, and you, epsilon, upsilon, which means well, to worship well. Okay? So this is the idea of living a devout life, a holy life, a, a life, the life of a worshiper. That's what you're here to do. Okay? Augustine said, we are restless until we find rest in thee. That's a worshiper. You're going to be restless if you're seeking fulfillment outside of Christ. 
until you find rest in him. So um, this word could be translated, godliness could be translated reverence for God, right? But it is the life of a worshiper. Um, from, uh, let's see, from uh, Marvin Vincent's word studies, he says, hath granted, this is the only word which Peter and Mark alone have in common in the New Testament, a somewhat singular fact in view of their intimate relations. As I mentioned last week, uh, Mark is mentioned in 1 Peter as well, and it is Mark uh, who wrote down the recollections of Jesus in the gospel that is uh, given his name, right? So Peter preaches about Jesus, Mark follows him around and listens and writes it down, and that becomes the first and earliest gospel. And as I indicated last week, it's very likely that when Mark left Paul and went back to Jerusalem, he attached himself to Peter, and he and Peter, uh, that is Mark and Peter, had a long and fruitful ministry. So, it says, yet it tells very strongly against the theory of a forgery of this epistle. The word is stronger than the simple didymi, right? That's a word for, for he, to give, meaning grant or bestow as a gift. Compare Mark 15, 45, all right? And so I'm not going to get any further than this first, but I'm going to finish it out real quick. Um, through the knowledge of him who called us. So we receive all of these grace gifts when we know him. It's not merely familiarity, but full knowledge, right? It's not just, oh yeah, I recognize that. So anybody that has taught has probably been made familiar with Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning. At the bottom of Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning, the very basic uh, level of learning is recognition, recognition memory, to recognize. So that's when a teacher gives you a multiple choice test, or as we used to call it, multiple guess, right? So here's the question, and then you have a series of possible answers. Well, recognition memory will come up, oh, yeah, that's it, yeah, 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 yeah. But I wouldn't have been able to recall that, because recall memory is, is at a higher level in Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning. That means that knowledge has gotten deeper. So you may recognize a face. Oh, yeah, I've seen you before. What's your name again? I don't know your name because I can't recall it. But I recognize you, right? So that's a very basic level. We're talking about something that's deeper. You get at the top of Bloom's Taxonomy, and you're talking about being able to evaluate. You're, being, you're talking about being able to create. So you're taking what you've learned and you're doing something with it, right? This is the level of knowledge we're talking about here. It is a full realization through the full knowledge, through the realization of him who called us uh, by his own glory and excellence or to his own glory and excellence. I mean, just get that, guys. This is going to be the last verse that I'm going to cover, but he's called us either by or to his own glory and excellence. So what does it mean? That means if he's called us to his, his glory and excellence, which I think is likely here, and we're going to see this in the next verses, then he's got something better in store for you than just a boring, normal life. Because his glory is the greatest glory. right? And the word excellence here uh, is a Greek word for virtue, which we'll look at next week. Uh, it's the word arite. Um, and it has a wide range of meaning, but... Um, 
it means to live the, the best life, right? A most excellent life, a virtuous life, uh, a, a, a God-honoring life, but a life that is good that would be even recognized by people that don't believe in God. That's, that's what Peter had said in his first letter. He said, you know, live your life in such a way that they can't say anything bad about you, right? So somebody might not share your politics. They might think you're a weirdo because you go to church. Um, they might assume that, you know, you're too far left or you're too far right or whatever, but they can't, they might not agree with your politics, but they can't get around the fact that you're living a good life a life of love, a life of kindness, right? So this is what we're called to, and I don't think that uh, it changes much to say we're called by this. That is, Jesus didn't just say, you know what, I'm gonna let you in, but you're not really worth it. <laughs> He's made you worth it. He's provided everything you need for life in God. He's made you worth it. So he's calling you, calling you by his own glory and excellence to his own glory and excellence, right? So that's something for us to look forward to. Um, and we'll look at what it says next week about his great and exceedingly uh, magnificent promises.